Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 297 of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Zach of All Trades, an interview with Zach Jones. My name is Matt Sabatello. My name is Richard Johannesson. You're in for a treat today to learn about Lyme treatments given all throughout the world from the United States all the way to Germany. Zach Jones grew up in the States on the West Coast in California. He then moved to Germany and he's calling in today for this interview from France. Zach's treated with a wide variety of doctors and had to learn to become a Zach of all trades and become his own detective so he can figure out the things that were missing in his healing protocol. He's partnered with a team of doctors. He's learned how his personalized genetics had an impact on the treatments he was previously given and how to overcome those hurdles. And he shares all of this right here on our Tick Bootcamp podcast. So without further ado, Zach Jones in Zach of all trades. Zach Jones, Zach Delicious, Zach of all trades. Welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, really excited to have you. Uh, we always like the big personalities on our podcast, as you know, and you're clearly one of the big personalities because you have so many names and you've uh, <laughs> lived in so many different places. So, Zach, why don't you first uh, introduce yourself to the folks by uh, sharing with us where you live and uh, what you're currently doing for work? Yeah. So, uh, currently, I live in Germany. <clears throat> I actually followed my wife's career, which was. Um, more recent uh, development. I had a career guiding, um, traveling all over the world, guiding bike tours, basically, and, and other aspects of that. And um, and we met. We actually met on a trip, which never happens in 20 years of guiding. And uh, we really liked each other. And then she had a dream job come up, and it was in Germany. So I'm like, this is tough because it wasn't on my radar. I get paid to travel. It wasn't all that novel for me to live in Europe. And, um, but it's turned out to be amazing. And uh, yeah, so um, for work, I still do a little bit of the guiding. We recently had a kid um, recently as in the last 17 months. And so I've been heavily involved in that. And, um, you know, uh, I'd say my biggest job has been um, recovering and figuring out what's going on. Well, congratulations first on the baby. I mean, holy cow, is your life about to change, Zach? And one of the things that I want to share with you is uh, that nice head of hair that you have uh, is going to be dissipating soon because as the father of four daughters myself, I went from having nice hair like you to having no hair. So tell me what it's going to feel like to be a hairless man. Uh, it's fine. I'm about to cut it all off anyways. It's such a pain. <laughs> all right. Well, get ready because you're not going to have to cut it off. It's going to fall out of your head. I just watched... Uh, Derek okay. Jeter's um, uh, documentary here, the uh, New York Yankee icon, and uh, he shared that all of his hair fell out of his head when he had two daughters. So it's 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 going to be coming, brother. It's coming soon. So right. thanks um, for the warning. Yeah. So so Zach, uh, give us some uh, background about your um, about your life uh, here in the U.S. Talk to us about where you grew up and what it was like for you to uh, grow up as a uh, you know before you became a uh, a uh, European Yankee. Uh, what was it like growing up here in in, in the U.S. Yeah, so I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area mostly uh, there in Texas, and um, and I, I went to Texas kicking and screaming, and I went back to California as quickly as I can. So to apologize to any of my Texas friends that uh, may be listening, they already know this. Um, and yeah, it was just uh, I bounced around the Bay Area a whole bunch. Um, I had separated parents, and so um, kind of back and forth. And it was either one side of the Bay or the other. So one side being San Francisco area and the other being Oakland or maybe North up in Marin. Um, so lots of instability, I would say more or less, but also lots of exposure to different places and different people. 
So what, what is it that you were passionate about during your childhood? Meaning what, what was it that you thought your aptitude was and what is it that you were passionate about um, developing? Yeah. So, you know, outdoors was um, a big part of my growing up. A lot of the places we always seemed to live in the hills, which was great. And so oftentimes we'd have trails right out of the back of our house and, and I would go wandering and um, just, I remember at five, even four years old, I had a little just pseudo camp kit. It had like a plastic canteen. It had a, a plastic tent and, uh, and a little compass and all that. And I would just, you know, I'd go wandering with my mom or my dad or, or my, my big dog at the time. Um, and going out, picking things, making concoctions, just, I was an only child. So, um, I, a lot happened in my imagination. Um, and, uh, yeah. And another thing I would say would be art. I, you know, I was really into drawing. Um, I was really into my imagination, um, creating stories. I was really into star Wars. So, uh, I was of that generation of the original best movies. And so of star Wars and the series. And so I, um, was highly inspired by that. And uh, it became a big part of my play. All right. So, so you had this, you had this passion for the outdoors, you had this passion for art and you sort of merged those two as you move forward with your, with your uh, undergraduate education. So well, where'd you go to college and what did you study when you went to college? Yeah, I went to, well, it started, I went to Rochester Institute of Technology. So I had uh, relocated to Texas for high school and I'd gone to, it was sort of a decision. I either stayed in California and tried to play football, or I moved to Texas. And if I went to this art school and it was a competitive art school to get into. And so um, I got in, that was the decision. So two totally different worlds. Um, and that led me to uh, photography school, which I just been, I kind of became passionate about it in eighth grade and this during a summer course, some eighth to ninth grade. And um, so I just knew I wanted to do photography and I went to Rochester Institute of, of Technology for photography. And it, uh, because it was one of the top sort of technical schools, and it also had sort of your standard education. It wasn't just pure art school. I, I wanted that balance. I wasn't just an artist. I, I, I wanted to experience that full college experience. So um, that's where I started. Uh, it was expensive. It was a private school. And um, I ended up going back to Texas because I had in-state residency there. So I ended up going to the University of Texas and finishing my education there for the last two and a half years um, and studying art as well, as well as geology. So, so you went to, did you go to RIT here in New York? Yeah. All right. So, um, so let's talk about all of your time outdoorsy, right? You, uh, as a, um, as a kid had this sort of nomadic, uh, or I should say nomadic life where you're bouncing back and forth between your mom and dad's house in different parts of California. You spent a lot of time outdoors, uh, went down to Texas. You spent a lot of time outdoors in Texas, came up to New York, uh, spent out time out here, right? Developed this passion for photography and outdoorsy living. Um, yeah. what do you know about ticks and tick diseases? Not much at all, really. I mean, I knew about ticks. It was the whole thing where you, you, know, you put a match to them and burn them off. <laughs> and I guess they would go ahead and magically release. Uh, it wasn't really until I was an adult that I started to learn about pulling them off. And when I had my own dog and I had to deal with it that way, but no, I had no idea. I'd, I'd heard a little bit about Lyme disease or tick-borne diseases. Tick-borne diseases, I didn't learn that term until the last few years. So, um, All right. yeah. So, 
So you had a lot of exposure with ticks in with your outdoor passions, right? Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit more about your 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 outdoor passions, how it developed into a career for you. But with your outdoor pa passions, you were generally aware of ticks. Do you recall having been bitten by ticks during your childhood or any time uh, during your college life? Yeah, I don't remember specifics, but uh, for sure, I, I was bitten by ticks. I, I pulled them out, you know, the same, you know, like the the match trick that doesn't actually work. Um, and I can't tell you how many times, and I couldn't tell you that I ever had the bullseye rash or any, any um, instant sicknesses or, you know, relatively close sicknesses to them. Um, it was that type of thing where, because I was, I was safe. I was in the West coast, you know, oh, that Lyme disease that's, that's in the East. It's very regional, you know, that you don't have to worry about that. Uh, and I can remember even in my mid adult life thinking that, I mean, more recently, even thinking that. So. Right. So, and part of what was going on, of course, is that you were also healthy, right? You were physically healthy. You said you're an athlete. You were, you were uh, debating in part about whether or not you were going to pursue your passion as a football player. So you were a healthy young guy, you're a healthy young kid. And, and uh, although you were being bitten by ticks and uh, we now know that, you know, that the ticks were spitting into you many diseases, your body was able to manage the diseases that were being spit into you and you never became sick and either acutely or chronically. Yeah. Exactly. All right, so talk to us about how your career developed, right? You, you, you studied, uh, studied photography. You had this passion for the outdoors. How did that ultimately become a, um, a career pursuit for you? And, and, and how did you develop that into a, uh, a passion business? Yeah, for sure. So when I, uh, I always kind of regretted leaving RIT because it was so career focused and, um, really amazing program at the time. I don't know what it's like now. Um, and when I went to UT, it was more, it was huge university. Um, and I just sort of lost focus and it was just, there's so many different options and so many different ways you can go about it that I, I came out of school, not really having a clue, but I knew when I was in Texas, I started exploring more. I started rock climbing. I started doing a lot more mountain biking, um, some mountain climbing, just got really engaged in adventurous pursuits outdoors. And I wanted to marry the two, the, the photography somehow. So, and I knew I wanted to go back to the West. I wanted to be in big mountains, um, back near friends and family from, from the West coast. And um, so I just moved back to San Francisco. Just uh, I had been working at a summer camp during the summers in New Mexico, which was in the Sangre de Cristo mountains. And those, I did four summers during college. Um, and that really got me moving more in the direction of outdoor adventures and confidence and leading people and, and whatnot. Um, kids mostly, I mean, uh, uh, on different types of adventures, rafting, mountain biking, hiking, horse packing, you name it. And so went back to San Francisco Bay area. And, um, this is high to the dot com craziness going on and, um, really hard to find just a, a foothold if you weren't into the tech industry. Um, so working multiple jobs, worked in an outdoor gear shop, thinking this will be a great way to get involved. Um, started interning at like, you know, ad agencies and whatnot. Well, how can I put this photography to use? And uh, one of my colleagues at the the gear shop where I was working, um, Stacy was, she was a guide for a, a company and she kept talking about how amazing it was. And one day she just started interviewing me, just grilling me and saying, you would be, you know, asking me all these questions. How would you deal with this situation? How would you deal with that? And I'm like, where are you going with this, Stacey? She's like, you would be awesome for this job. I think you need to apply. 
for this job with Backroads, which was a um, active travel bicycle tour company. And um, so I was like, what the heck? I don't, you know, I'm 23 years old and I've got nothing else to do. Let's try it. And that, you know, led into guiding and into a guiding life. And I was going away from photography more or less, but I also thought, hey, I'm going to be traveling. I'll bring my camera. I'll, I'll build a portfolio out of this. I'll see where it goes, see what happens. And um, so I ended up doing that for a few years and moved pretty quickly and got to a point where they brought me on to do trip design, like actually build some of their trips and um, create the experiences for the guests. And um, it was an office job and I wasn't into it. (laughs) It's like kind of lamenting the fact that I'd chosen that path at the time. Um, 9-11 came around and huge layoff. Travel industry took a big crash and I had to figure out something else. And so I went back to my passion. I was like, I'm going back to school. I'm finishing that RIT sort of program. But instead, I'm going to go to this school in Santa Barbara. Um, the Brooks Institute of Photography. And that was the other school that I, you know, had always been hearing about. So went through that a little bit and it wasn't, I mean, it was probably in there eight months when I got a call from one of my um, former coworkers at Backroads. And she said, Hey, we're starting up a tour organization through Trek Bikes. And um, if you're interested, you know, we're going to need some guides. And I, you know, I thought, cool. But, you know, it'd be fun to go back to guiding, but I, my direction is photography. My direct, this is what I'm doing. And, uh, and they're like, oh, and we need photographers to do our catalog work, you know? So we'll give you a tryout, you know? They weren't going to just got hire me for that straight away. So I'm like, all right, let's do this. And jumped in and, um, well, that was 20 years ago. <laughs> and it just kind of took off because I had this perfect combination of like, I got to guide, I got to lead people. I got to work in a very... Um, you know, uh, extrovert environment that I craved, but also had the creative aspect where I could, you know, be sent out on trips and I could do the photography and and do that more introvert sort of pursuit. All right. So let's talk about um, your guiding experience, right? So if I were, if I were someone who were seeking an outdoor adventure and I were coming to you um, to, um, to, uh, create or design a uh, an experience for me in the outdoors. Uh, I would think the most important thing for me was that I'd be safe, right? If yeah. um, if I if I just wanted to go run around and be reckless, I wouldn't need you. So keeping me safe was your primary job. Is that am I correct in that, or or what, would I be unique in in expecting that to be part of my experience? No, you're absolutely correct. It's the it's the biggest most important talk that we do every trip. Uh, safety talk, you know, and we have the slogan, safety never takes a vacation, you know, so um, you're right. All right. So if safety doesn't take a vacation, and that's a part of the basic training that you would give me before you would create my uh, guest experience, um, would a part of that safety talk uh, include keeping me safe from ticks and tick diseases? It will now. (laughs) Well, had it in the past. It hasn't. you you no. have a, you've had a almost thirty year career doing this between the time that you were you were working at Backroads and then ultimately when you uh, worked for the startup after nine eleven which you've continued to work for for many years uh, the Trek bike experience um, had there ever been had you first of all been trained uh, on how to 
keep people safe from ticks and tick diseases? Yeah, no, I mean, I've done relatively extensive wilderness medicine um, and it's touched upon and I haven't done a the courses in probably about four years now, as far as the advanced medicine, um, the wilderness first responder and whatnot. And maybe it's more touched upon because I think it is reaching a more sort of mass understanding, but um, it was never a big part of it. It was always about more of the preventative or um, life-threatening situations, meaning immediate life-threatening, not long-term kill you over, you know, a long time. Right. So, so the, so the things you could see like snakes and bears yep. and, you know, something that might attack you or maybe big cats, depending on where, whatever it is, you're, you're lighting the tour, uh, you're giving the tour, but you, you, yeah. you certainly weren't training people to no. uh, check themselves with ticks while they're on the tour and to make sure that uh, tick no. checks are a part of every single day's uh, experience. If we were working in a region, um, you know, say South Carolina, um, I'm trying to think of some of the trips that I may have North Carolina where I uh, may have guided, it would be a thing. We would mention that, hey, you know, check yourself for ticks. They're common out here. A lot of times we are riding on the road, so we weren't actually going off into the woods and whatnot. But when we were doing mountain biking or we're doing hikes, things like that, it might be something that we mentioned, um, but it wasn't really emphasized. It wasn't a big part of our standard safety protocol still still isn't to this day so All right, so what kind of equipment were you given uh to provide treatment uh to your folks i mean do you have a first aid kit because you talked about you know one of the things i sort of see developing with you is you're you're a young child you're in san francisco you have this kit that you brought with you your, your little camping kit right uh and uh then you're then you go for this uh, quasi interview with, uh, I think your friend, Stacy, who's asking about all these different situations. I'm sure she didn't ask you about what you do. If one of your, one of your wards had a tape biting them while you were on the, on the hiking, uh, or trekking experience. Um, you then have, you know, I mean, you're working for, you know, two of the top, um, you know, um, trip design customer experience companies in the world. And, um, you know, I'm just wondering like, if you have a first aid kit, uh, what's in that? And were there any tick uh, tools available to you to help someone if they are bitten by a tick? You know, there's those little, there were little bite kits. You know, I think they may even be called tick bite kits. There's snake bite kits, all these kind of things, which really never got much use. Um, and um, oftentimes they're there. We had extensive first aid kits. We had, you know, all the sort of you know bandages that you could want and, um, you know, and uh, what are they? I'm, I'm spacing on the names of the, uh, uh, you know, like aspirin and Advil and all those kind of things. And we couldn't actually administer those. It's the kind of thing where I'm going to open the first aid kit and you can take what you would like, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have AEDs in the vans, so we're prepared for the emergencies, uh, you know, Benadryl in the case of uh, uh, allergic reactions, those kind of things, but it wasn't something very common, you know, that we would. Okay. So now let's talk about your personal experience, right? So you've, you're, yeah. you're, you're a guy who's traveling all over the world. You have a passion for travel. You have a passion for photography. Um, When's the first time you start to experience what you now know to be the symptoms of your tick disease? Yeah, so 2007 um, was the most obvious uh, occurrence, I guess. And, you know, I, I can, looking back beyond that, I can start to reflect on maybe some, some indicators. 
But really, it was, um, I think, a sort of a straw that broke the camel's back scenario, which I hear a lot of um, in your podcast and the stories of a lot of your guests, um, where there was one thing that just sort of it, everything changed. And for me, I was in Honduras and I was on a vacation down there. We were there to scuba dive and hike and see the Mayan ruins. We did a little um, horseback ride on a beach. Beautiful. The It was getting late. So our guide took us the shortcut, which was just mosquito infested. Um, and then the next few days, I had strange pain in my neck. Um, I was a little concerned because my dad has a degenerative spine condition. I was like, oh, no. I'm getting his condition. So I started, the wheel started spinning, but I, I really started panicking in a way that I hadn't before, like really concerned. There was this inner voice that just kept saying, something's wrong, you know, something's like really wrong. Um, and, but I kept plugging along. I mean, life had been totally fine up until then for the most part, you know, I mean, everybody has ups and downs, but you know, when I would have like sadness, but I never had depression, I would have freakouts about tests, you know, test anxiety, speaking in front of people, that nervousness, never had a panic attack to what um, I then experienced at 80 feet below the water when I was diving and I had a panic attack um, first. And I, I didn't know what was going on. I just all of a sudden felt the weight of the ocean on top of me and needed to get out of there immediately. Um, and I, I was pretty well, you know, was, uh, advanced certification in diving. I knew all the scenarios and knew how to deal with it. The dive master, I went up to him and I'm like, I got to go up. You know, we've got 10 other people or eight other people with us. And he's like, are you sure? He's calming me down. Everything calms. And I, and I just let it go because I knew this can happen. You can get, you know, nitrogen narcosis and certain things can happen when you're in the water. Um, but then it wasn't until... I just continued to get sicker on that vacation. It was a two week vacation. We got home um, and I was just worse. I was just really sick. Uh, I had body aches. It was just a trying to figure it out. Went to um, a uh, disease. What's that? The not internal medicine, but the infectious disease guy. And he thought I had leptospirosis, which turns out is a spirochete. Um, but he also didn't have a positive test for it. And uh, then decided it was a, a friend who was a pediatrician was like, I think you might have dengue fever. They looked at that. They said, that's a virus. We can't do anything, but we'll give you some antivirals and you should be fine in a few weeks. And sure enough, I was fine in a few weeks. Um, but what, and that seemed like everything was okay. This is, oh, this just happens. Um, I'm going to be fine. I was then I'd been really sick for about a month was super drained. I, you know, it was pretty athletic. I rode bikes a lot. Um, and I, I had an event in Idaho that I had to drive to from Oregon. And on that drive, I had another panic attack, but this one was just the mother of all panic attacks out of nowhere. And that was literally just looking off at, you know, kind of beautiful scenery and boom. And I don't, you know, panic attack doesn't really describe what it is. And anybody who had is it knows knows this. It's just this sort of, um, oh man, it wasn't even me. I don't, I don't know where I was, what was happening. And I had to pull the car over and stop and, um, call my mom and be like, whoa, I don't know what just happened. And that just started a uh, sort of a series of, that was the worst one, but it just kind of kept happening, um, on and off for the next, literally 
four or five years. And it was accompanied by depression. Um, it was all what I thought, you know, was psychological, really. Um, all right. So let Zach, let's 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 explore that a little bit more, right? So so you said that uh, prior to 2007, your survival software had been triggered. Yep. There would be events like giving a speech in front of a group of people, or there were other events that would cause your survival software to trigger, but it would untrigger and you would just go about, you know, living your life. But then in 2007, when you were in Honduras, your survival software triggered uh, and this conversation between your body and your subconscious mind and your and your and your conscious uh, mind started to be uh, something that was concerning, and it started to be debilitating, and it and and it, and it didn't untrigger. Like you knew something was wrong, and you knew something was bad, and as a result of of that, uh, your you know your 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 mind took you in a number of different places. Perhaps you had some genetic disorder, and you were now going to be on this path with you know that your dad had been on, or perhaps something else was wrong, right? And then you started to get symptomatic, right? You started to get sick, and because you started to get physically ill, you started to treat with doctors, right? Now, when you started to treat with the doctors, they gave you a couple of diagnoses. One may have been a bacterial infection. One may have been a, um, a virus that you were suffering. And they treated you with, you with some antivirals and, and maybe some, some antibiotics. Some yeah. antibiotics. Uh, but, but unfortunately, the conversation between your body, your subconscious mind, and your brain continued, right? You continue to sort of have this survival software triggering, right? So you knew... What you were, what you, what was going on was not what you were diagnosed with, and you knew what you were being treated with at that time wasn't adequate. So, what were you doing when this conversation was taking place in your body? Were you continuing to listen to that conversation? Were you continuing to take steps, or, or were you just sort of allowing sort of the ebb and flow of of what you were considered, what you were considering, um, you know, a perhaps a uh, an emotional or psychological illness to just sort of ebb and flow? Yeah, I was listening to it. I was very in tune to it. I wanted to know what it had to say. <laughs> what What do you want me to do about it? And um, and I was trying everything that I knew that I could, um, whether it be the traditional uh, standard medicine or um, alternative medicine. My partner at the time was an acupuncturist, so I was exposed to a lot of alternative medicine. Um, so that I, it was trying everything. So now when you were going to doctors, were you, well, actually, let me ask this. Were you going to doctors? Did you, did you continue to go to doctors and, and did you continue to try to find someone to help you to diagnose you with what was wrong with you because your survival software kept telling you in the conversation between your body and your subconscious mind and your conscious mind, was there something wrong with me? Were you, were you seeking help? Yeah, I was seeking help. I would say because there was no um, physical illness that I could identify beyond that few week, month long period after Honduras, Honduras and after, I wasn't really going to anything other than how do I, you know, I was looking here, I was just looking in the brain because that's where it seemed like I thought everything was happening. I, I did keep getting just those internal messages that, that internal dialogue of like, there's something wrong and it's not just your head, but I didn't know what to do about it. You know, so I went to, I went to acupuncture. I went to body work. I went to do EMDR. I did, um, you know, uh, medication. I went to a nurse practitioner and to psychiatrists and had spec brain scans. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, and I just kept trying new things. I found naturopaths. That's when I discovered about naturopaths. Um, and it was probably the one of the naturopaths that I went to where I started to get success with certain um, herbs or supplements. Uh, I remember remember like maca being something and a lot of vitamin B and um, but yeah, I mean, I was I was pursuing everything. Okay, so now, um, how were you as a patient? Were you being very detailed in first um, listing your 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 symptoms so that you can pass them on to your to your practitioners? Um, and if you were, um, were you? Were you, uh, do you believe you were giving them enough information to properly diagnose you with what much later became a diagnosis for Lyme disease? Yeah, gosh, that's a good question. I mean, I was, I think I was giving them good information about symptoms, but um, I, I don't know that I was putting together the right picture or even really going to the right people. Um, that knew how to put that picture together. And that's what I kept looking for. I, I kept changing which doctors I went to. And I had, I did have a general practitioner that, you know, he put me on citalopram, which was a, um, a mild dose of citalopram. And this was like four years on. Um, and that, that combination with the naturopath that I was seeing seemed to kind of shift some things uh, in, in, in a positive direction. And, um, but it took, it took four years to get there. So Zach, you know, look, as adaptive beings, um, you know, our species, uh, our species has developed, um, you know, this, this, this set of signals that we often ignore, right? And, um, and part of the reason why we often ignore the conversation that's taking place in our body is because doctors gaslight us and they tell us that there's really nothing wrong with us or we mm -hmm. because doctors aren't able to diagnose us we start to doubt the conversation that we that you've def defined so well that yeah. you are participating in between your body your mind and your and, and your and your brain um at some point did you either begin to doubt the um the survival software that was triggering in you because either doctors told you there was nothing wrong with you because your diagnostic testing was was not showing anything or did anyone ever tell you, hey, Zach, there's nothing wrong with you. You're, you know, it's all in your head. Yeah, you know, uh, people were, I think people were helpful to the extent that they knew how to be. Um, nobody was trying to brush my um, challenges under the carpet. I just didn't have, I didn't know, but I, I knew that there was something more to it. I just didn't know why or how that was. It was just like you said, the survival software inside was starting to go haywire. Um, and that was, you know, and that was just the first wave. I mean, that was the, just the psychological wave because the second wave didn't happen until 2016 when, you know, but to answer your question, I mean, I think um, I, I was giving whatever information I could, what I had, but, and, and I think that the, Nobody was trying to brush it under the carpet, but it, they just didn't maybe have enough to work with, whether it be in their own experience or from what I was giving to them, you know, as far as what my symptoms were. 
Um, and literally my symptoms were all in my head. You know? Right. So, so Zach, let's talk about that now, right? So one yeah. of the biggest challenges that folks have on a Lyme disease journey is they often get stuck in fight or flight. And it then becomes one oh, yeah. of the challenges that they have to overcome in order to be able to heal. Because remember, if your body is in fight or flight, it can't heal, right? Yeah. And so as time goes on, and one of the things that's making me anxious about your story already is, you know, you have this experience in 2007, your body is, is sending you a signal, the signal is getting worse. I shouldn't say worse, but you're, the survival software is triggering and it's triggering and it's triggering and it's triggering, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and, and, and you're not able to stop it because the problem isn't diagnosed. You're not able to treat it. So how are these, what you're describing as psychological symptoms developing? I mean, and how is it getting more intense? How are the signals getting more intense? Yeah, so it, you know, it seemed to get most intense in the first year. Um, the first year was uh, hell. <laughs> and, um, and it had a huge impact on my relationship. Um, and that set in motion, you know, sort of the destruction of that relationship um, and misunderstandings between friends and whatnot as well. Um, but I did start to feel better. And I did get to a period where I thought it was gone and it was just something um, more or less gone. It was always just a little bit in the background. Um, you know, there might, insomnia was another big thing that I had a lot of, um, you know, so uh, heart palpitations. Now things that I recognize as physical symptoms, air hunger, I'd go to bed and just be like, you know, trying to breathe, like I can't get a full breath. Those, I didn't realize, I didn't connect those as physical symptoms at the time. And Sorry, go ahead. Were, and were you were you sharing those physical symptoms with your practitioners? I'm assuming not because you didn't even believe they were symptoms at the time. So they probably were not were not symptoms that you were sharing with your practitioners. Yeah, like the air hunger, I I didn't know how to voice it. It was like I I can't get a deep breath type thing or um insomnia. Yeah, that's easy to identify. And 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 in some cases I was prescribed um, you know, whatever Ambien or whatever those are. And I never went that route. Uh, I found my best sleep was the Alka-Seltzer night, <laughs> which whatever, I, I started taking those for a while and those helped me get back on track as well. They were part of this weird, strange cocktail that got me back to a, a five-year period of normalcy, I would say. Okay. So you, you did share with us, uh, and, and I'm sorry, you, you know, the 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 trigger for the end of your relationship at that time was this disease? Was this disease uh, having an impact on any other social relationships? And was it having an impact on any professional relationships? Um, I think it was a, it was a classic. That's where I learned the term fake it till you make it. Um, I was struggling a lot in my job. I started to stagnate a lot more in my work. And so what I found is that for me, safety was what I knew. Um, And whereas before I was adventurous, I guess. And um, I wanted to keep growing and progressing and and be that go-getter, uh, you know, as far as building this career. And then 2007, eight, I just started to hunker in. And it's like, I just kept taking more trips and guiding more and more because that was where I was safe. Um, it was the environment that I was comfortable in. Um, I feel like I may have digressed but from what well, you no, thought. no, but 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 Zach, it, it sounds to me that because you 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 know your survival software had been triggered and you were in fight or flight, you had to find some way of managing that 
what you were considering yeah. a psychological problem by finding a safe place and and, and a safe place for you was always from when you were a child was always yeah. being in the outdoors, right? So you were you were you were trying to manage the emotions because you couldn't read the signals. You knew you were sick, but you thought maybe you were emotionally sick. It, it was being in the outdoors and it was feedback from the people around me. You know, it was that distraction, I guess, that my, a very distracting job because you're busy, you're doing this, you're doing that, you're always traveling, you're always taking care of other people. Um, I would say my friendships did suffer because I traveled a lot. And I wasn't able to build that community in where I lived. Um, my relationship suffered because I was traveling a lot and I wasn't there. But then there was also when I was home, I was able, I was then focusing again on what's going on, what's wrong with me because I wasn't distracted. And so now all my, you know, my partner was getting was um, the, the bad sides, I, I guess, of me, the challenge sides of me where I'm, you know, depressed or anxious or whatever. So yeah, it did have a huge impact on, on relationships and friendships. Right. Because, you know, unfortunately you were not in a place where you could give, you could only take. And, and of course that, that is going to make a relationship difficult when you can't contribute to the relationship yeah. you can only take from it. Right. And I was giving so much for my job which I was using as self-medication. <laughs> so. Right, right, right. I mean, it was really a distraction. You wanted to be distracted from the voice in your head and the voice in your head was there's something wrong with you and you needed to be distracted from that. And that's all you could do. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about um, how things progressed. So you, you had sort of a reprieve for about five years uh, and you and you started to talk a little bit about a cocktail that you had taken that you believe gave you that reprieve. Talk to us about what that cocktail was um, and how, how, you, how that helped you to achieve the reprieve that you had until 2016. Yeah, I wish I had kept better track of all this, but you know, I would say the citalopram, like it was like small 10, five, 10 milligrams, something like that, um, which was slow and slow and low. My doctor was like, slow and low. Let's just keep you doing that. Um, that seemed to maybe help a little bit. Um, I, you know, was doing using magnesium, um, like a, a topical magnesium, um, some. BCAAs, maybe some branch chain amino acids. Um, I remember doing the maca and some herbs and, um, um, but, you know, but nothing, none of this really comes down to like what I've heard more in the Lyme community and what I've been using more recently. Um, there's a little bit of crossover at uh, the Alka-Seltzer, you know, doing those Alka-Seltzer nights where it was how I was able to sleep consistently. Um, even though it's probably doing other damage because of the NSAIDs and whatever else is in there. Um, but it got, you know, it got me through and that was the cocktail. And, and, and then I was able to sort of taper off of the citalopram and taper off of other things until I just wasn't really considering it. Um, so yeah. in that five-year window, you were engaging in a lot of movement, right? So we, we, under, we understand in the, in, at least in this podcast that if you don't move, you don't heal, right? Yeah. Movement is an important part of that. And, the, and, and of course there is this unhealthy movement versus healthy movement, right? I mean, if you, if you train too rigorously, we know that is immunosuppressive. So um, what was your movement like? Were you, was your movement, um, was your movement uh, supportive or were you training hard as a former football player? Or were you just doing the, the things that you were doing in, 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 in your profession where it was, it was more healthy? Yeah. So just a, just so you know, I never was a football player. It was, I aspired to be. So. Okay. And then I ended up getting into outdoor sports instead, but um, uh, yes, I was very active. I wasn't competitive, but um, you know, I did half marathons and, and 
a few bike races when I could. It was hard to, I wanted to be more competitive, but um, participating in events anyways, but um, my job was hard to do that because I wasn't able to train. So I always had a baseline of fitness. Okay. Um, I, yeah, and I was so, probably good. No, but yeah. that could oh, yeah, be yeah. probably good. Yeah, I think it was better because, so an example of when you are as a, as a guide, you're not doing it necessarily at your pace. Um, you're doing it at maybe the lowest common denominator pace or, you know, somewhere in between. And so I think that was helpful for me that I wasn't pushing myself because as more recently I've discovered when I do push myself, I crash and burn. All right. So talk about your diet. What was your diet like during that five-year window when you had the reprieve? Yeah, my diet has always been decent, um, but I didn't really know much about it. I had been a vegetarian for about seven years. Um, I had broken my leg right before I got that first panic attack in 2007. And the doctor was like, if you want to heal up pretty quick, you might want, and I, it was my femur. So I, you know, lost a ton of blood. Um, they were like, you need to start eating some meat. So I started eating some meat. Um, and that was it. Uh, but I, gosh, I didn't, I, I was healthy, but I wasn't healthy. You know what I'm saying? It was like what I understood as healthy more recently, I've started to learn more about different options, paleo options, ketogenic diets, you know, the importance of organics or, you know, um, those kind of things. And I don't think that I was focusing on that. So what I thought was healthy, I was aware of healthy, but not really. Okay. So let's talk about 2016, because that's when the, that's when the crash uh, arrives. Talk to us about the 2016 crash and what was going on in your life um, just before the crash. Yeah. So I had um, recently, I had lived in Bend, Oregon for about 10 years, 2005, 2015. Um, 2015 was a really good year. Things were moving in a great direction, but uh, there was an opportunity that we kind of couldn't pass up. We moved to um, Grand Junction, Colorado. And, you know, as you know, when you move, you pick up and you have to change. You have to meet all new friends. You have to figure things out. Um, I was just um, a lot of transition. And, uh, I had the year before I had designed a trip down in Chile and I was pretty sure that, you know, I was going to go away from guiding as much as I could. I was going to go more into photography and um, make that just my straight career. Um, somehow one year later, I find myself going down to Chile to guide, which, you know, doesn't sound bad, but um, it was just kind of stuck in a cycle. Um, and so I get down there and I'm just thinking about that a little bit um, about where I'm in life. And, boom, another panic, huge panic attack, like the first one. Um, and just, man, uh, insomnia and all sorts of crazy stuff going on. And that's when I was like, there's something going on. Um, along about the same time, I was having a little bit of strange pain in my mouth, in my jaw. And, um, and I knew that I had an impacted wisdom tooth. So I kind of figured that was, that was what it was. So now let, let's talk about the panic attacks a little bit more. Um, because really a panic attack is your body screaming at you, right? Your body's screaming at you, there's something's wrong. Were you reading your panic attack that way or how were you reading your panic attack? I, at that point, I definitely was reading it as something else is going on. So this is that shift um, pretty early on from, from psychological, mental, emotional to physical. I'm like, this is not normal. This isn't a, this is a physical response. Um, you know, panic, 
I know panic from when you panic about something, you know, you, uh, you know, whatever, you forget your keys somewhere or whatever. And there's that feeling that flush. Well, this was happening for no reason. It's that, that physiological response and and the, the constantly nervous gut and, um, you know, almost like I couldn't eat, lost all appetite. Um, and it just, it was a very physical experience. It wasn't just in my head. And I knew I was like, okay, something's up and it's physical. <laughs> All right. So Zach, so, now, so you, you discover this dental issue when, uh, when you discover the dental issue, did you rationalize that that's why you were having these anxiety attacks? I now have uh, an understanding of what the physical issue is or, uh, or not. Not immediately. So um, it took about a year of that pain getting worse until I finally said, I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to go to the, um, oh gosh, whatever that surgeon is that removes your wisdom teeth. I can't remember. Uh, and oral surgeon, oral surgeon. Yeah. There's another one, but anyways, um, endodontist. Yeah. So endodontist. And so, and, and he was great. And he, you know, he looked at it and the x-rays was like, well, that's pretty bad, but you know, if you're not having any pain, then we'll just leave it alone. I was like, I'm having pain. It's weird. Sharp nerve, you know, nerve pain. He's like, okay, let's take it out. We took it out. Pain was still there. Exactly the same. Um, there was some shards of bone and stuff that was still coming out. So he decided to do another surgery to get the rest of it out. Maybe some of it was resting on the nerve and that still even worse. Um, and so that started, you know, probably year, year and a half, I started realizing, I think there's a connection here. I'm not sure what it is, but I think there's a connection. Um, meanwhile, panic attacks are ebbing and flowing, um, having, you know, not just panic attacks, but the insomnia, I'm having the air hunger, I'm having, you know, in, you know, just gut, but not like your typical indigestion or diarrhea. It was more, um, like the, the butterflies in just constant butterflies in your gut. Um, and like, there's nothing to be nervous about right now. There's nothing to be upset about. Um, so that started the direction. Um, and it just kind of kept getting worse. The, the mood, you know, depression, anxiety, all that. So Zach, how, how are your symptoms in 2016 similar and different to the symptoms that you were managing in your two, 2007 uh, experience? Uh, the biggest thing, because I would say that the, what I had qualified as the emotional, psychological were very similar. Um, I would say I was a lot more in that realm, a lot more focused on the, the career angst. Like, what are you doing with yourself? Why have you not moved forward? Why haven't you broken out of this cycle? Why do you keep going back to the same thing? Um, I had, it was the, the mouth, the jaw pain. It was like, this is strange. And that's when, you know, that oral surgeon had, had mentioned, well, I think you have trigeminal neuralgia, but no reason why. Um, and you know, which maybe has, demyelination of the nerve, or it may be something pressed up against it, but, you know, go to have an MRI and they don't see anything. They're like, no, you're fine. I'm like, well, it doesn't feel like I'm fine. Um, so it was different parts that were starting to come together. Um, and it was, it wasn't until gosh, 2019 just was having a really bad fall working a lot. Um, it, in a bad place in my mind a lot. It actually was 
when I had met Melissa, my current, my, my partner, my wife, and um, and I'm surprised we got together because I was this was like the worst of me was starting in this 2019, and um, and I was trying to figure it out, and I was going, you know, I was listening to podcasts, I was researching naturopaths, um, trying different doctors, and I ended up going on an ayahuasca retreat. And um, thinking that I'd heal or get some some sort of magical epiphany, um, and I did. It, the 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 thing that sort of came out of all of that was that I needed to look at something inside my head, <laughs> but not psychologically. Well, you know, but but Zach, you know, the, again, ayahuasca has been getting a lot of attention recently because of Aaron Rodgers, the the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, talking about how mm-hmm. that was an important part of his recent healing journey, right? Oh, okay, and. Yeah. And when you're stuck in fight or flight, which you were, right? I mean, you had yeah. now, you, you know, if if we do some, you know, some simple math, this is now 2019. You, you know, you you had a, you know, a a survival software triggering you into fight or flight all the way back to 2007. You had you seem to be stuck in that for, you know, in, in a rigorous, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, experience for at least a year, and then it now came back with, you know, with a vengeance. So the ayahuasca was probably a good step, even though you didn't understand it, because at least it could help you to calm down, um, you know, your survival software and, 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 and maybe get you out of fight or flight. So you can take some yeah. additional steps. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And that, that did, and it set me on just the path of trying this thing and then the next thing. And, um, uh, and it was, it was focused on the mouth. So at first it was focused on, and that's how I discovered biological dentistry. Um, still no idea about Lyme, co-infections, any of this, um, little bit of fear about MS because that's what I've heard about when, and when you research, try to, you know, researching can be a good thing and researching can be a terrible thing for your psyche. Um, and when I started reading about trigeminal neuralgia and taking it seriously, I was like, this could be a mess, you know, like, I, I don't know if I want to find that out. Um, but the biological dentistry route was the way I wanted to go. But, you know, I'm traveling all the time. I don't have a home base anymore. I actually had left Grand Junction. I was just sort of in limbo. It was, you know, Melissa and I were deciding to move together. So that whole year, 2019, was going to be me just working a ton and then us coming, meeting together in Germany, essentially. Um, And so I was really ungrounded as to my healthcare. Right. I didn't have a primary care doctor. I don't even know if I had health insurance. Um, and I'm trying all these alternative medicines or, you know, whether it be ayahuasca or biological dentistry or, you know, like a health coach of sorts, um, functional medicine doctor. And uh, yeah. Um, so talk to us about the, your, you finally get your diagnosis. How, how did you get your, your Lyme disease diagnosis? So yeah, flash forward, I decided to get the, um, I had had some serious damage to my teeth. And so that's why I was very focused on my mouth. Um, I had had my front teeth broken out and my bottom tooth from a bungee cord, um, not bungee jumping, just a bungee cord snapping my face when I was 22, had a bridge, had, you know, um, implants, metal in my mouth and um, bridge had failed at one point, replaced with more metal in my mouth. And 
learned that's not good. We need to get that out. So I did the bi biological dentist. When we moved to Germany, I found a, um, a well-known doctor there, Dr. Nieschwitz, to take out the cavitations to replace everything with um, you know, the zirconium, I think, and get the metal out of my mouth and, and get me on a path to healing, you know, and that's supposed to deal with the meridians and all sorts of things. And so I'm thinking, this is it. This is what's going to solve the problem. <laughs> you know, this is where the panic attacks are coming from. And that feeling that something's wrong, it's all in my mouth. Um, so once that happened, afterwards, I got worse and I started to experience um, all sorts of weird physical symptoms, neuropathies, strange migrating pains, um, tons of fatigue, the, a lot of the classic symptoms that I hear about people that suffer from Lyme disease and co-infections, um, but I still didn't know about it. I talked to Dr. Nieschwitz about what's going on. He's like, at this point, you know, we've done what we need to do to your mouth. I need you to talk to this doctor. Um, and so another doctor, Dr. Hoffman, we were doing some things remotely. Um, she got me on a track where I was dealing with another doctor in Germany uh, and a few um, anti-parasite type things. She was using um, ART, it's that autonomic response testing over the phone. So I'm like, this is crazy, but you know, I'm gonna go with it. I don't know what else to do. Um, and so that leads me to another doctor who then multiple doctors, ultimately I get a clinical sort of diagnosis of Bartonella in 2020, fall of 2020. And it wasn't until going through treatments that all that year to the following fall, last fall, 2021, that I more or less came down through my own research that this sounds like Lyme. Uh, a lot of listening to your podcast, honestly, listening to different guests tell their story and tell their symptoms and tell their journey was, uh, that's what I've been going through, you know, for like. So Zach, talk, let's talk about the BART for a minute. So Bartonella is, you know, a very interesting element of the, you know, the, the, the Lyme complex or, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the, the set of microbes that we define as Lyme disease. Um, do you believe that your psychiatric and psychological symptoms were BART related? And did you have any anger issues um, during the course of this phase of your journey? Yeah, that's a good question. So I did right before flashback 2016, before I had that first big panic attack leading up to that, I was having crazy rage. I was just so angry at like the curtains, you know, like it would set me up and it'd be like, Rah! I don't know why it, and, um, it was just not normal. Um, but I didn't identify it with anything. Just thought, oh, I'm just in a mood. So, but the other thing is my tests have never come back positive for Bartonella. So I'm, that's the other thing. But so, yeah, I believe it, but I never have had a, a confirmation that Bartonella is one of the issues. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. So, so now one of the things that a lot of our guests argue to us is they they take Lyme disease very seriously in Germany. Um, now that you've been, you know, a... Uh, uh, a resident of Germany for some time, and you were diagnosed in uh, Germany. Do you think uh, there there is a difference with the way that the German system treats Lyme disease uh, and the American system treats Lyme disease? You know, I've been. It's funny because a lot of really, I think a lot of the treatments and a lot of the testing is identified here in in or there in Germany over the border. Uh, but 
I, you know, my doctor down here, um, well, one of them, she's been really gun shy about uh, Lyme and uh, specifically um, Borrelia. And so she's done a bunch of testing through Armin labs. And we came up with like mycoplasma pneumonia and chlamydia pneumonia and Coxsackie virus um, has been a big one. But in testing for Lyme, it really hasn't come up through Armin labs as, as positive. Uh, it wasn't until I went back to the States to get tested that Igenics where we found Lyme. And then when I reflected that back to her, my doctor here, she um, said, well, Igenics always comes back positive. And she's always sort of brushed um, Lyme under the carpet. And, I, and I'm not sure, it just has to do with it's risky, you know, it's still risky here. Um, and I've had a really hard time identifying Lyme literate doctors. And I think part of that has to do with the language barrier and what I'm searching for um, and who my community here, here is now. Um, and I recently now found a doctor that talks about Lyme on their website here in Germany um, or there in Germany that it is, is more open about it. Um, aside from like the hypothermia clinics where they have it on their website, yes, we treat chronic Lyme. I found it really hard to access, you know, to, uh, someone that, that embraces it. So Zach, you first got diagnosed with this clinical Bartonella, right? And that was in the States, in Utah. Yep. Did you do anything to treat? Is, is this a diagnosis you took seriously? You believed and you treated upon a first getting this diagnosis in the States? Yeah, I was, I was like, let's do this. Let's kill this thing, whatever it is, you know? So I start researching Bartonella, what that's all about, and got sort of terrified because that's when I first started realizing what was going on with uh, or understanding um, chronic infections, like, and, um, and online, like, infections, I guess. We, I was doing the Patricia Kane protocol, and um, he was he was a Patricia Kane protocol kind of doctor as well as my doctor in um, in Germany, and so that's sort of how we were treating it, you know, uh, phosphatidylcholine and um, oh gosh, what are a lot of the um, you know the fatty acids and whatnot. Um, Zach, can you give us a little more background about the Patricia Kane protocol? We've heard about it before. And, you know, we, we do know that there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of things that go into it, but we've actually just a few weeks ago, I got a question in one of our DMs and we did a, a poll and there was a handful of people who have used it, but not a lot of good information out there about what it is and whether or not it's effective. So if you have any more detail about exactly what it is and how it works, if you can share that with our listeners and also did it help you in the end? Yeah. So it may have helped me. I wish I, I could explain it better. I, I just sort of was going with the doctors when, when they were, because this was the, like the beginning of, of everything. And I'm just so overwhelmed with whatever information I'm finding. And so my understanding is that, um, it's, it's supporting your body at the cellular level. And so it's the idea that, um, if you help with the permeability of the, the cell cells so that they aren't as permeable. And so they're able to do their functions better that they will then you just build 
build back better, right? You know, your body is now being able to fight things from the inside. And so I think there's a lot of faith in that. Okay, we put you on this protocol, you do these IVs, um, you know, these infusions with the, the PC oil, um, you, maybe you do some colonics to help some, you know, things move along there. Maybe you do, ozone, you know, augmenting treatments along with it. Um, but ultimately your body will then repair itself because you're working at the cellular level. What now I'm thinking I understand is that that doesn't work for a lot of glutathione um, is part of it. Um, what I'm now understanding, thanks to you guys having Bob Miller on, is that my genetics don't jive with that. Um, because the fats that they want me to use for my cellular, I'm not processing them and I'm having problems with the glutathione. So when I take that, I'm tanking. So I don't have a specific definition of the Patricia Kane protocol, but I think I have an understanding of why it's not really helpful for me. But I mean, I think, you just, I think you're not being, you're being a little hard on yourself because you just gave us a brilliant explanation as to what it is. It's, it's a, a tool that allows you to rebuild your body so your body can fight off a variety of infections on its own by strengthening the body using things like PC, fatty acids, ozone, glutathione, et cetera. But the problem is, as you just brilliantly, brilliantly described for us, Zach, is that people have these genetic SNPs that don't allow them to properly absorb or utilize these supplements like glutathione. And in your case, you actually felt probably a little bit worse from the glutathione because after, after the glutathione is being used as an antioxidant, it's now not up converting or, or changing back. And now it's becoming an, it's becoming an oxidative stress on your cells. And now you're getting inflammation and you're having a worsening of symptoms. So it's not a one size fits all solution, this Patricia Kane protocol, because if you have genetic SNPs like you do for glutathione, then it's not going to help you. I think is what you articulated, correct? Yes, correct. So I think so, it's a really important note that this protocol has helped people, but for some people mm -hmm. it won't like yourself, Zach, because of, of, of this whole bio-individual concept of what is your genetic makeup and what are things that are different about you than me, where it's not going to work for you, but maybe it will work for me. So I do believe that was a very good explanation. Thank you for that. So let's jump over to now you're on the, the PK, the Patricia Kane protocol. You're not really seeing much results. And that's for the clinical diagnosis of, of Bartonella. Then it seems like back in Germany, you had the Armand Labs test done and you had the mycoplasma, the chlamydia, the chlamydia pneumonia, the Coxsackie, and a couple other things pop on the Armand Labs, right? But not Lyme disease. Once that happened and you didn't have success with the treatment for Bartonella, what were your next steps at this point? Yeah. So then I stood, that's when I started learning about, uh, what we call Lyme disease and, and Borrelia and whatnot. And, and that's when I started, I guess, like diagnosing myself and, and basically going about the process of finding someone to treat that, you know, finding a Lyme literate doctor, um, which took me back to California where I have a, a doctor that I work with remotely that they, it was literally Googling what's, you know, what are some Lyme literate doctors that work, you know, any which way remotely next door to me, whatever. Um, and they had a really great write-up about things. And so I went with them when I went back to California last year. Um, and that's when I tested and then they set me up with a bunch of these other tests. Some of the tests confirmed what the German Armin labs tests were with the mycoplasma and, and whatnot. Um, the protocol then they put me on that I was on for the, about six more months, ended up getting me to another test this last April where a lot of the mycoplasma was down. A lot of the other things were down and there was no Lyme, but now I need to go back and do, 
hygienics or some other test because I don't believe that. It's like, well, the test may say that you're okay, but I still feel like crap, you know, and I'm getting worse in some ways. So that's where it's such a an art. <laughs> right. I mean, and I think the problem with this act is, as you just described, is doctors are relying on these tests as being yeah. the end all be all. And if right. we're if we're going to say that this test is the end all be all, but yet we also recognize these tests are not 100 percent accurate. That's a flaw. It's a fundamental yeah. flaw. And that's going to only harm patients. So you're you're smart enough to realize, well, I didn't test positive for a lot of things that I was in the past. So my doctors are thinking I'm healed, quote unquote, but I still feel like complete shit. So there's got to be something else going on. And you're digging deeper is kind of what you're where you're at now. Right. Yeah. But I, I do want to back up a little bit, right? Because after after the Patricia Kane protocol and you're in the States, you're in Utah and that doesn't work and you're back in Germany, did you do any other treatments besides the Patricia Kane protocol in Germany or through the States in Utah that you want to share with our listeners for any of the various things you tested positive for, like the chlamydia, mycoplasma, et cetera? Yeah. Um, so... I'm trying to think of what exactly, because it wasn't really until, um, it seems like the most success I started to have was when I started to get on more of something that would, I guess, identify with like Dr. Rawls-ish, where there was, you know, like the cat's claw and the, um, I love herbs, um, Chinese skullcap, andrographis, um, and certain combinations of those supplements, certain, um, vitamin vitamins and whatnot. Um, but you know, then throwing glutathione in there and, and not finding any benefit from that just because of that genetic side. So, I mean, I don't know that I have anything specifically. Oh, I did go, I got this wave. Well, that the wave is that, uh, our listeners can't see, but that I right away yeah. recognized and you held it to the camera, Zach, that's yeah. the, the wave one device, right? Yeah. So I have no idea what it's done for me, honestly. Uh, I've had it for nine months. I got it. Um, you know, I mean, I was like kind of trying everything, right? Uh, has a lot of good advocates. I wouldn't say I've noticed anything from it necessarily, but I wouldn't diminish it either um, because I would say that, you know, numbers are shifting and, and I don't know if it's the herbs and that's, I haven't gone about this very scientifically, unfortunately. It's like, just throw everything at it and hope that it, <laughs> that you get better. Um, but that's fair. You want to feel better. So it's hard to say, is it the wave yeah. one? Is it the herbs or both? Right. You, you yeah. don't know, but you know, you're doing both and you know, you've had some progress, but you know, you're not, you're not at a level you want to be. So you want to keep, you want to keep pushing further to get even better. That's kind of where we're at. Right. Yeah. But when you did all these herbs and the wave one, that was post Germany doctors, post Armin labs, that was through the California doctor. Is that correct? The wave one, I just got on my own. Um, the, yeah, the herbs herb combination was, um, the California doctors and, um, that protocol. And now I'm, I'm shifting gears again because what, you know, it was, it was something I was doing for a while and we saw some movement in test results, but we, I actually feel like things were not as good this last half of the year as they were the, the half of the year prior to that. So it's this thing where, you know, test results are better not feeling better. Um, and I think what we're getting down to is more, um, honestly, like when I start looking at like, what is a good sequence to go about this? I'm starting to figure out a logic behind it. And I don't know why we don't just start from the genetic or the genomic functional genomic level. And, you know, in talking to Bob Miller, which was 
just a couple of weeks ago. So Zach, yeah. you, you did a consult with Bob Miller, the geneticist yeah. we've had on the podcast. I did, tell, yeah. Give us a little bit, tell us a little how that went because he's a brilliant man and yeah. we were just fascinated by that podcast interview. So walk us through how that, that how that doctor's visit went and what you learned about your body and specifically your genetic makeup from that visit. Yeah, super interesting. Um, there's a lot of technical information that he explains really well. He recorded it for me so that I could go back and watch it twice. I've taken notes so that now I can process that and put some, some pieces together. And ultimately what it shows is that there, um, you know, certain genetic mutations that interact with each other that prevent these normal protocols from working the way that they're supposed to be working. So they may have a small impact um, and a small benefit, but there's something that's preventing you know, that, and it could, it could be oxidization. Like I might, you know, certain, um, uh, mutation that causes you to absorb more iron. So you're, you're, and I think you talked about that on your show. Um, and, and that has then more downstream effects, especially if some of the other enzymes that are, you know, being manipulated by the genes are not, either upregulating or downregulating appropriately. So there was that. So oxidization was a huge thing. Ultimately what it, it came to, if I could just put it into a nutshell, was a is is MCAS. You know, it's like it's the um what is the that acronym? I know you know oh mass cell activation syndrome. Mass cell activation. And so what I came away thinking about that and then when I started researching, he didn't say that it was MCAS, but he talked about how the mast cells are being activated. Um, because of histamine reactions, you're, there's inflammation ultimately that we're trying to bring down through various channels. Um, I thought it was a great interaction with him. Um, and we're going to revisit in nine weeks. He's going to set, he's got some certain supplements that are supposed to, um, what does he say? Sort of offset uh, because you can't change the genes, but you can counterbalance and you can offset some of those reactions. So it's that's why I say I think it's really important that people start somewhere like that. Look at what your individual makeup is, and then build out from there before you start trying all these, you know, blanket protocols. And I think that's why so many people struggle, um, and that's why I've been struggling. Now I'm saying this before things have actually really changed because I haven't started his supplementation. I haven't gone the new path, but I just have a, a good feeling that I've identified my op- some of my obstacles, right? Zach, we agree. I mean, obviously you're in the middle of this with, with Bob Miller right now, but I mean, we know people that are super smart leaders in the community that utilize Bob Miller personally and, and refer their clients to him for their extreme cases, right? And they yeah. have success. So he's sort of the guy I can't get my patient better. I'm sending him to Bob Miller to figure out what their genes are so I can then work around that. And that's exactly what he does is he identifies what genetics that you have or mutations. Then he provides supplements. And that could be in, in the, the form of, of food. It could be in the form of supplements, right. herbs, vitamins, et cetera. And those supplements are targeted to overcome the genetic mutation. So you don't have the bad effects of that genetic SNP or mutation, right? And that's where you're at now is it sounds like you have some iron issues and some glutathione issues with absorption, and you're going to be given supplements to offset or overcome those genetic SNPs. So you can then continue on, on your healing journey. Is that, is that where you're at now? I just want to make sure I understand yeah. where, you, where you are, Zach. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, he was very clear that he's like, because I asked him, well, do I then stop everything that I'm doing and just do these supplements? And he's very clear that these are, um, 
they augment what you're already doing. And so the idea is that by ramping these up and it's a slow process, everything's a slow process. You can't be impatient with Lyme disease, I don't think. Um, and of course we all want it fixed like right now and six weeks becomes six months or however many years. It's a slow process. And as I think that starts to ramp up, the protocols start to become more effective as well. Well, I do want to question you on that piece of it, because I just want to get your personal opinion. So obviously right now where you're at, Bob Miller said to you, don't change what you're doing as far as the cat's call, Japanese knotweed, Chinese skull cap, andrographis, all those things that, you know, are in the Dr. Rolls protocol and more the natural holistic side. But if you knew about your genetics earlier on, when you first got diagnosed clinically with Bartonella, possibly you would have avoided the, the high dose glutathione because you weren't on any supplements and you were responding yeah. negatively to that. Right. So this, yeah, the, yeah, sure. the assessment may alter treatment depending on how severe your mutations are. And if you're supplemented yet to overcome those limitations, right? Yeah, yes, exactly. And, and so the glutathione ultimately will come in at a very slow and small uh, amount because he thinks it'll be effective. But once we start balancing other aspects. Right. So, so the glutathione is still helpful, but it's not helpful until you can get your genetic mutations under control, I think is what you're saying, yeah. right? Yes. Right. So that, and that's why people and I agree should start with the genetic side of things because it can help you avoid a ton of pain and a ton of frustration and a ton of wasted money in the process, spending all this money on something that's making you feel worse without having the big picture of your, of your genetic makeup, right? So yeah. I think it's a really, really, really important topic. So so I just find it so odd, and I don't keep harping on this one point, but before, before the California doctor, these doctors back in Germany, I think it was Dr. Armin and Dr. Uh, Bieber, they diagnosed you with Coxsackie, mycoplasma, chlamydia, pneumonia, and, and a few other things to Armin Lab, and they didn't do anything to treat you? Is that because you decided to leave and go to California, or were they just being like, hey, look, this isn't a big deal, just move on with your life? You know, what was that actually like you as know, far as that they process? Did. They did, and I'm, I'm trying to think of specifics. So there's um, a company called Phytobox. I, I remember there being some um, formulas, essentially, that come in that. Um, and there's a Phytobox 1 and a Phytobox 3, and a lot of them have those elements of that in there. So uh, they would have the cat's claw or the andrographis, or they'd have certain herb combinations. Um, so yeah, I was definitely doing that. And some others like the Nutramedics, which I guess is part of the Cowden protocol, they threw some of those in there. So there was like Takuna and um, um, Mike, Mike P, M-Y-C-P. Um, and you know, a lot of these things, I'm just like I was working full time. I was, you know, just had a baby and I'm trying to, I'm like, okay, I'll take it. Let's just throw it in the mix. And I didn't have a lot of time to research what it was all about. Um, as I got with the California doctors and I was like, this stuff isn't working as well. So it was not just Patricia Kane. Um, it was Patricia Kane plus certain herbal um, concoctions. But that came so, after Patricia Kane, correct? So Patricia Kane was for the clinical Bartonella. And then when you had the German doctors, you were doing Nutramedics, Phytobox, and you still weren't feeling better on, on the, you know, the second iteration of doctors and, and testing, which was, led to your third, yeah. right? Or, or is that how it worked? Or was it, was it really all overlapped together at the same it time? It was overlapping. Patricia Kane came in with the initial uh, testing, which I didn't even really talk about. And that had to do more with like heavy metals and, um, they did a, a like a fatty acid profile testing and whatnot, but that that Patricia Kane was the first sort of protocol that I was introduced to, and then as we started identifying things like potentially Bartonella, but then tested Mycoplasma, um, 
in, in chlamydia, pneumonia, and, um, and the Kuksaki specifically small amounts of EBV, small, you know, little, little levels of certain things. That's when they brought in these herbs to add to that. And that was only within a window of maybe three or four months. Um, and then I took those herbs for almost an entire year before switching gears with the California doctor and finding with those herbs that I was having a really hard time getting up to the dose that they wanted me to have. And that has to, to do now go to the genetic component of it, um, of where whatever the genetic um, profile is, I have a real hard time uh, detoxifying, you know, this stuff. I just wonder, and you know, it's, it's really hard to really obviously know any of this for sure, but a lot of this is detective work that we play as Lyme oh, patients, yeah. right? With chronic Lyme patients. So if you were on Patricia Kane protocol for a few months before you went on to the herbs to do nutrimedics and Phytobox with the, the German doctors and you stayed on the Patricia Kane protocol, right? While you were, while you went on to the new herbs, right? So there's overlap. Yep. Do you think that your genetics were causing histamines, inflammation, and MCAS, which prevented the herbs you were on through phytoboxing dramatics from actually working effectively because you were being, your system was being bogged down by some of the things in the, in the Patricia Kane protocol, right? I mean, cause that seems to be where your yeah. genetic weaknesses were really being exploited were through the Patricia Kane protocol for you, right? So I just wonder if you were on the herbs without the Patricia Kane protocol, would you have felt any differently? And I guess to answer that, were you, was there ever a time you were off the Patricia Kane protocol and still on those herbs through Nutrimedics and Phytobox? And was there any difference in your, in your response? Yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't tell honestly if there has been a difference in the response, but I, I, what you're saying makes sense. Um, as far as I think the Patricia Kane protocol ultimately was helpful in the detoxification of certain elements that I needed to deal with. And that was the heavy metals because we were able to test within a few months and see some really significant results. Um, but then when we started to deal with like mycoplasma and all the, those little nasties, we had a hard time making progress uh, with Patricia Kane and the herbs. So um and you yeah. still didn't feel any better with the heavy metals being reduced in your body. You weren't feeling much better because you had so much other stuff going on. And I think that's kind of where you are, right? Where you saw your blood work saying that the heavy metals are better, but you're like, I'm still sick. What's up? And then you realize you don't let other stuff off to the side. You no, know, honestly, I think I felt a little bit better. I, I took some work in, in um, Utah. So I was work, I was guiding for a period of eight weeks, feeling pretty good going to the doctor that she recommended in Utah. Great guy. And he just, uh, but we were doing glutathione and we were doing, um, oh, colonics and the colonics were, you know, I thought it was the colonics, but I think it was actually the glutathione that was wreaking havoc. And the more I did the treatments, cause they were saying, you know, like, well, you do multiple of these treatments, the more you do, the, the better you start to feel cumulatively. And I was like, that's not my experience. <laughs> I'm like feeling worse. And it was this antioxidant that was actually oxidizing, you know? So yes, I think there was benefit from Patricia Kane to a certain extent in the beginning. It just, yeah, it's getting bogged down somewhere in there. Well, and I think at a very basic level, we can say the Patricia Kane protocol helped you with your heavy metals, which was yeah. something that needed to be done. Yeah. However, the glutathione, a lot of the extreme antioxidants caused a problem because you couldn't, you couldn't 
recirculate the the spent glutathione, right? And right. now you're getting the mast cells, you're getting the inflammation. So on one hand, you're knocking down the heavy metals, but on the other hand, you're increasing inflammation. So it's sort of like you felt you felt the same, but you were addressing one issue while making another issue almost worse, right? Is where you were at and 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 leveling it out. So yeah. when you went to this, I think it was the California Center for Functional Medicine. Is that correct? Yep. You know, is that, is that a place you'd recommend? We have a lot of people here in the States that are, are especially on the West Coast, looking for, for good Lyme facilities. Was your experience overall pretty good with them? And, you know, not to put you on the spot to say, okay, they sucked, right? But I mean, are you, are, were you happy overall with, the, with their testing and the treatment they gave you and, and how they were able to help you improve your quality of life? Uh, yeah, like 70%, I would say. And I think that part of it is you you always still end up being your own detective. And it, it's... It's the easy the, the easy part of the appointments. It's the the hard part is in between. You know, easy part is getting the script of here's the new protocol. The hard part is when you get into it and then you start experiencing some sort of hurts or some sort of a reaction, and you're not really sure what to do. Now, what I like about CCFM, their little acronym, is um, that uh, you can communicate with them through the portal. And so when I would get into these issues and it's multi-pronged, so they've got, uh, you'll have a primary practitioner that you're working with. You'll have like a health coach and then you have a nutritionist. And so they work together and they work off of the same platform to communicate between each other. So they know what's going on. And I think in theory, that's a great system. Um, for me, I still have to go outside of it and work and look for more. And that's why I've had to bring in Bob Miller. And now I'm looking at SOT and I'm looking at, you know, some other options um, outside of that. But I would say that they're great um, as a foundation, as a plot, you know, a base um, to work off of. Yeah. So I have to say, I mean, this is just, I, we tease you a little offline because you're, you know, we call you, we've been calling you Zach Alicious or Zach of all trades, right? But yeah. I think the Zach of all trades is really such a, and that's something you, your friends call you Zach of all trades. And we're seeing why in this podcast interview, I mean, you are truly having to learn and grow because one doctor is never going to get you better. So you're pulling in Bob Miller based on this podcast and what you learned there. You're pulling in, you know, the, the California Center for Functional Medicine. You have your doctors in Germany. You have, so you have all these doctors, but you're ultimately the yeah. one who's making decisions saying, I'm not feeling better, but yeah. my, my labs are good. I'm not feeling better. Something's not right. I'm digging deeper. And you're the reason that you keep getting better and better and better, right? So I really like that Zach of all trades name for you because you are really your own detective, right? And I think that's important in the Lyme journey. But I do want to pivot back to the wave one, right? Because we know Yolanda Hadid used it and said she had great success in managing her chronic Lyme disease with the wave one device. So many people get it. It uses frequency therapy to sort of, you know, balance out or cancel out the bacteria using these this frequency or waves that go into, into your body. What was your experience? I know you said it's hard to tell if that was the improvement or it was the, the herbs, you know, cat's claw, Japanese knotweed, Chinese skull cap, and yeah. But I mean, do you have any thoughts at all on the wave one that you can share with our listeners? And and even even price-wise, you know, is, is, it a, is it bang for your buck? Any feedback you can give us on that advice? I thought it was a, a healthy investment. Um, it was a tough pill to swallow. The, I think the thing that pushed me over the edge was like, hey, if it doesn't work in six months, you can send it back and get your money back. And I missed that six month window. I think I was definitely on the fence of sending it back. Um, but I think partly because the effects perhaps are subtle um, for me, I did notice sometimes when I would ramp it up uh, because you can control it within the computer app, uh, the level that you're receiving for the three different modes, 
Um, I would, I mean, it hurts a little bit more. I would have more of a response beyond that. So to me, that indicated that something was going on, right? And so I was like, this is good. Because if I wasn't getting a, a reaction, I would kind of think, well, this is just putting a light on my skin, <laughs> you know? Um, and so now I, I believe that it is doing something. I, I, like I said, I didn't go about things really scientifically as far as keeping them separate. And so that's why it's really hard for me to vouch for what did what, you know? Um, it could have contributed now that I know what I know about the genomic side of things, it could have contributed to actually more inflammation in die-off, you know, um, and then difficulty with my body managing that. Um, well, so we know you, we know your iron absorption. We know you had an issue with, with glutathione and obviously detoxing in general. Right. So, but I do think, I think here's another important note though, I think, because many people question, does it even work the wave one? Because we've had yeah. people tell us, is it just a snake oil salesman product? Is it just like, like you said, a light on my, a light shining on my leg, that's going to do nothing right on my wrist yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah. But I mean, you're, you're, you're putting on your detective hat. I mean, here we are, Zach of all trades again, where your, your analysis of this is I wore the device. And when I jacked up the frequency to a higher level, I had a Herxheimer reaction, which means it's doing something. So it clearly isn't just a fake or, you know, a fake product. It's doing something, but it, it really matters. Will it work in, in, in everybody? And how well did it work in you? I think is where you're at. Correct. And, and exactly. And I think that's the same with any, probably the, any treatment is that, is your body ready for it? You know, is this the right treatment at the right time? Uh, you know, are you, you know, your, the detox channels or pathways prepared for what this is going to do with, within you, you know? Um, and that's the, that's probably the biggest challenge to any of these health journeys is, is figuring that out. So Zach, talk to us about, uh, we talk, uh, in your pre-interview questionnaire, you mentioned these FMTs and how they were very helpful in your treatment. So walk, if you can, walk us through for our listeners, what, what are FMTs and how do they help you in your journey? Because they seem to be like really, really powerful and pivotal in, in getting you a quality of life improvement. Yeah, it's so funny. It's I, you know, first time I heard about it, I was like, that sounds terrible. It's so gross. So it's fecal microbiota transplant. And essentially they more or less put poop in your, uh, in your system, in your, uh, colon in your, um, there, well, there's multiple ways that they can do that. They can do them by pills. So you're literally eating crap, <laughs> um, or they can do it by, uh, an enema. Um, I think there's like three different ways or whatever. Anyways, um, we, we did, um, so now we're getting personal, but I, we definitely got the, the enema version. And, um, which to me was more tolerable. The idea was to rebalance that, okay, your, your microbiome is, is off and it, they've had tremendous success with, is it C. diff, which is yep. the. Yep. C. And, diff, I believe. Right? Antibiotic and, resistant, right. And they're using that for C. diff for sure. Yeah. And there's a ton of research coming out in different ways of, of, you know, all sorts of benefits where, you know, for like Alzheimer and mice or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Like there's brain benefits and. And um, anyways, for me, initially, it was just one of another thing is like, let's throw it at the wall and see what happens if it sticks. And I was having gut issues, you know, and like I said, I just kept having more and more issues after that 2019 um, mouth thing. And it was just like, what, what now? So gut was going off the rails. 
that's how I decided to my uh, doctor here, my original German doctor recommended that as a potential option. Um, if we didn't have success with Patricia Kane and the herbs that we would do that. And so we tried it and I found for about nine months that I felt pretty good as far as uh, my gut was pretty solid and I, my mood was pretty good. Um, wasn't having panic attacks. It wasn't like elated. I definitely was still lower than normal, but, uh, and I'd only had two of them. So I'd had two FMTs, whereas they kind of recommended, I guess, about six of them, depending on what your condition is. So um, it was like a teaser. So I thought, okay, that was great. And then along about this February, I started having more panic attacks again and more gut issues. I was like, it's maybe it's time to do more because maybe I just didn't do enough. And so I went in, was going to do six and ended up doing, got through maybe four and I was not doing well with them. Um, so again, I don't know. I don't know what what would have maybe interacted with that, but um, I think they can be miraculous for some people. And it definitely helped me in the first year, year before last, but this year they just, for whatever reason, it just wasn't something that was helping. So they, when you say they weren't helping, they, they just, was, it was literally like no change at all, no improvement, or were they making it was, worse? No, my gut got much worse. Actually, I, got, I was getting diarrhea, um, like pretty crazy. And, and so that was, I was doing those in, late March, early April, um, was the window of time that I did the, the, the four or five of them. And I just like the last few days have been more normal. So it's, hmm. I, I wonder who's that. Know. I'm no, sorry. Go go ahead. Ahead. I was just saying, I don't know how much that is, or if it's some sort of a candida thing, I haven't even really tested for candida or what, the potential MCAS component of, you know, histamines can do. It's just like, there's so many bits of information that I haven't synthesized yet to try to sort it all out. I wonder, and again, I'm just totally thinking out loud with you here, Zach, right? Is, does the donor matter? Meaning the first two times you got the fecal transplant, you had a really healthy stool sample that you were implanting into your colon. And we know that there's an extremely large quantity of microbes in, in our colon, in our feces, right? Yeah. So the first donor where you got your first two, you know, implants of, of, of this, was that a really healthy sample that allowed you to have this real boost for nine months where it not only improved your gut, but you helped you with, with depression and anxiety. But more recently this year, maybe it was a different donor and that sample wasn't as diverse when it comes to the, the, the microbe set and possibly not having a high enough quantity of the microbes your body needed, but the initial donor did, right? And I don't know that we're at a place right now with science and, and, and technology to be able to identify all the microbes in our, in our gut or in our microbiome or in, or, or in a feces sample to figure out exactly what you know, Matt or Zach may need in a fecal implant. So maybe you got lucky the first time with a good set of, of you know, microbes and the second time it wasn't what you needed and that why, that's why it didn't help. And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I would say that I think it's multiple donors. So it's not just one donor sample that you're getting, you know, through each time it's, it's different, but I absolutely agree. I don't think that we're there yet. Um, as far as tailoring, I, I think there's a way we can, you know, a, a ways that we can go to tailor that it'll be a great delivery method. Perhaps maybe they can deliver it a little differently, um, uh, less impactful, but to help with a lot of different conditions, but I think you're right. It needs to be more targeted 
and we need to understand what the donor's microbiome, you know, uh, profile looks like before we put it into another. And, uh, and I, I agree. I, I feel like maybe there's, there's gotta be some interactions that just didn't click because I, there was other people uh, in the clinic that were complaining about similar thing. Like I'm coming back from my, you know, my 16th FMT and it's, I'm like, okay, it's 16th. Don't you figure like you stopped doing it, you know, but it's like, it's just not taking, it's just not taking. Well, it's like, okay, well, unfortunately, maybe that's just not the, the answer right now. So. So Zach, walk us through, I mean, obviously where you are now, you, with it, with, even though you, so you're continuing on with these, and I love that you're using cat's cold, Japanese not sweet, Japanese not weed, Chinese gold cap and andrographis, because those are some of the key ingredients in Dr. Rolls' restore kit that, that I use and Rich uses, and we've had great success with, and understanding there's some conflicts here with your genetics, but you still have made improvements despite your, your genetics, right? So give us an idea of how much you've improved since your diagnosis, your initial diagnosis of clinical uh, Bartonella, I believe it was, to the present date and how you're feeling better today compared to how you were feeling back then. Yeah, I would say... Um... A lot of the nerve related things. So I was getting, I would get strange hot sensations or cold sensations on my hands and my arms. I would get like neuropathies. I would get uh, just numbness, um, migrating pains, like in the middle of my shins, shin bones. I'm like, why do my, I don't have shin splints right now. I haven't even been running. You know, I found um, that air hunger got worse. So I'm just trying to paint a picture of what it was so that you can understand where I am now. And, um, I found, you know, as it was getting worse, I was having a hard time just breathing with, um, any sort of aerobic activity. I'd be running and, you know, cause it was pretty fit. And I normally, you know, things worked out fine for me in that realm and I couldn't do it. And I just, I would run half mile and be like, I can't, I can't, I got to stop and like lean over and touch my side. Like this is the first time I've ran and I was getting extreme fatigue. I was just falling asleep, um, at work, uh, on my computer anywhere, honestly, um, lack of motivation. So a lot of these things have lessened those strange migrating pains. I don't really have that much. Um, I still have joint pain in places that I, I feel is related. Um, uh, the fatigue is more manageable, although I still fatigue is still a big component. Um, uh, for a while mood was actually pretty good. Um, as I was mentioning, I'd maybe say like 70, 60, 70%. We've regressed a little bit there. Um, but it, it feels like it's stabilized, I guess. It's stabilized. There are things that are working, but there's things that are conflicting. And so we're trying to find the right formula to then do that upward trend again um, somehow. And moving forward, Zach, your plan is to now, you already met with Bob Miller, you're going to be getting supplements and you're going to start taking these supplements to offset your genetics, right? That's coming in the near future? Yep, exactly. So those those should be started pretty soon. Um, we talked about also the glutamate combination, glutamate, glutamine, whatever, that, that has the GABA, right? So essentially yep. it doesn't convert to the GABA. And anytime I've always found that anytime I would take like a GABA supplement or something that affected that system, it, it, things would get worse. So I knew that something was going on there. Um, so he's, I can't, I don't remember which specific supplements, but it was, um, to help offset that so that that system is working a little bit better. Um, in the that, 
that glutamate to GABA genetic SNP is a really ugly one, right? That causes extreme anxiety, depression, overload. I mean, that's something he described on our podcast as being very significant. So if you have that as well, that certainly could be contributing to a lot of your, your psych, you know, depression and anxiety and panic attacks. I think there's a direct correlation there between those, those two things. Yeah, exactly. And, and in relation to the inflammation in general, that's, that's happening. It, it responds, it creates that response. And we also know that you were looking at, you mentioned earlier, you're looking at using possibly SOT down the road. And in your pre-interview questionnaire, you talked about possibly looking at hyperthermia. So is that something you're kind of putting off to the side to see how you respond to the supplements from Bob Miller with, or are you going to be actively pursuing hyperthermia and or SOT in the near future as well? I think hypothermia would be an extreme. I'm not going to go that route right now. Um, but SOT, yeah, I'm actively pursuing that. And the, the doctor, another doctor that I'm working with now, and don't ask me to pronounce his name because it's like, I just call him Dr. M. Um, he does SOTs here in Germany. And we're going to start with the um, Koksaki virus because that, that's been the one thing that's been worse. It, it, it you know, it, dropped in numbers a little bit and then now it's it's worse and it's just constantly been there so we're going to address the Koksaki virus um i need a, a new positive test for lyme and so i've got an igenix test kit that i just have to navigate getting that drawn and then to them in the states to in order to get that igenix test uh which i'm pretty confident would still come back positive before we can consider doing an SOT for, for Lyme, for Borrelia. Zach, my final question before Rich picks back up is you talked about MCAS, you talked about inflammation and just a lot of the symptoms that you had to deal with. Was share with our listeners, any tools you used, even if it was just, uh, you know, a pharmaceutical or a natural thing or whatever it may be to help alleviate your symptoms while you were playing detective and getting your health better what were you using to feel better that maybe just be a band-aid even, let's say, just so you can have a better quality of life while you were working on healing and, and getting the big picture of your health? Yeah. Um, there's a couple things, and I, I don't know how helpful this will be for anybody. One thing is that I, I, it's always, and this definitely has to do with more with the psychological side of things when you're having the depression, the anxiety, is to keep moving. And, and I keep, I keep doing, um, I, I keep active as much as I can within those boundaries of what I can. And I have to listen to my body and know that, um, when I'm pushing too hard, um, it, there's sometimes you have to be distracted. Sometimes it, I have to find something to take me out of myself to get me to another space to move on. And what I've found is that regardless of how bad I've been in the depths of my own mind, in my memory, it, it's always worth doing something. It's always worth traveling if you can, having an experience, eating out, continuing your life, being with friends, you know, because in your memory, you still have the good parts of that, you know, and those are actually so much stronger then so much more powerful than that negative feeling you may have been feeling in the moment. So that's been one of the most powerful things for me is to keep moving. Um, and I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's, there's other small little things, but I think that's been the biggest. So Zach, that is very powerful. That, that whole concept of making sure that you continue to live your life while you're on your healing journey is really, really powerful. And I think you've articulated that really beautifully. And 
There's one other thing I wanted to address with you because, well, you know, we, we're always looking for patterns of success here on TIC Bootcamp, as, as you know. And uh, what we've seen is that the pattern, one of the patterns for success is the development of teams and tools, right? And what we mean by development of teams and tools is you need to work with practitioners. You shouldn't be going out there and being the Zach of all trades by yourself. Right. What you should be doing is looking for shortcuts. And one of the best way of getting shortcuts is to find practitioners who have been trained in particular frameworks or have developed an understanding of particular healing frameworks, which then become a shortcut for you. So rather than you having to become a geneticist or rather than you having to become a medical doctor or some other you know, type of discipline, you can find the people that you can assemble, take their knowledge as a shortcut, but even more importantly, have their experience in the context of helping you to take a healthy approach forward. So give me your thoughts about, you know, how much of this you yourself should be in control of when you're in this trial and error phase of developing your healing journey and how important is it to make sure that you're working with um, practitioners? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've done both, right. I've, I've gone out, I read something about, um, you know, essential oils, went right out and bought essential oils and tried them and, you know, whatever, without any sort of, um, guidance and, uh, and, and other, other things I've been guilty of that. And I, and I've sometimes found reactions that I didn't understand. And so I had to just step away from them. And, um, I, I think you have to be the leader of your team, but you need a team. Um, and putting that team together is hard and, it, and it'll take time to find the right people. Um, and sometimes people will play a role for a period of time and then their, their time may be up. And that's what I found, you know, is, uh, you know, like I had Dr. Nieschwitz for a while who helped with clear out my jaw and, and those things, but now his time has, I need to move on from that. And then what's the next thing, um, and not getting stuck in the same mode, but absolutely bringing, being, having the team. And then, like I said, being the leader, that means, knowing yourself, doing enough of the research, if you can, to understand what, what you are putting into your body, as far as what they're supposed to be doing, what are the herbs, what are the supplements, what are the medications and what are the potential interactions or how are they supposed to be working? What is the timeline? Um, what's the parameters of the Herx response that should happen? You know, these things, you start to build knowledge and you understand that from the top. And then you have your team to help manage the whether it be the symptoms or, you know, the ultimate treatments. So let, let's talk about a couple of more takeaways because I think there are a lot of really powerful takeaways here. The, the first is, I think you talked very powerfully the importance of getting yourself ready to heal, right? And you talked about how the steps that you took to get yourself emotionally prepared to heal and getting yourself out of fight or flight emotionally and getting yourself to a place where you can have a healing mindset. So that was really powerful. Second thing I, I, I really enjoyed about uh, your conversation with Matt is you talked about making sure that you understand that timing is important, right? That a protocol may be good and it may be good for what you need to do, but if your body's not ready for it, it's not going to be successful. Okay. Another really important takeaway is maybe starting this all with understanding your genetics and understanding how you are by by an individual and we all understand we're bio individuals but we don't always use tools to try to define 
how we are bio-individualistic and how that might give us some guidance on what we should be trying. And then of course, the piece we just talked about where, yes, you're the captain, but it's gotta be a team, right? And you have to build your team and it's never one practitioner, right? You have to be ready to move on from practitioner to practitioner. And last night, I get too emotionally invested in these people who are on our team because they work for us. And when they finish their job, they move on. So for example, Derek Jeter, who I referenced earlier, was the greatest shortstop in New York Yankees history. But he's old now, and he's not a great shortstop anymore. And, and, he, and he understood, and the team understood that he had to retire, and they had to move on, and they had to, had to find a new shortstop. Right. And that's the same thing that has to happen with doctors, right? I mean, at some point, the frameworks that they're offering to you are going to achieve whatever it is they're going to achieve. And then you have to move on to your new practitioners and build new teammates that you're going to direct. So is there anything else that you'd like to share sort of from a, you know, from a framework standpoint that I haven't outlined that's been a part of your experience? Well, I guess the only thing I'd add to that analogy with the baseball analogy or any, you know, sports analogy maybe would be, you know, the coach is always watching the films and going back and, and figuring out what's because things are always shifting, you know, and the, the conditions are always different. Um, and so you're, I think, being engaged with that growth. That's the only way you can be the leader of your team, you know. Um, right. And, so you have to be able to measure. You're all going to have to be able to measure. Right. And, and in the sports, in the, in the sports metaphor, it's going to be looking at game film here mm -hmm. in, in, in the healing journey for your health. There are a couple of things that you have to look at. One is you have to test on a regular basis, right? So you can measure how you're doing. And there are a lot of different ways of testing. Another way you've done that very powerfully and described in this podcast, and I apologize for not highlighting that is you always listen to your body signals and you follow your body signals, right? Another yeah. way that we do that, of course, is we interact with our, our team members, our trained team members who can give us some insight into why we may be behaving the way we are, right? So we have a number of different ways of measuring how we're doing so that we make sure that when we're going through this trial and error process, we're measuring whether something's working or not and when it's time to move on to something else. So it's not just purely just sort of throwing stuff against the wall, which you have done and not yep. necessarily had success with. It wasn't until you found a way of objectively measuring that you started to have the success you had with pivoting in, in I think, a, a healthy way. Yep. So is, uh, is, there, is there anything that you would uh, recommend to anyone, if God forbid, and you, 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 have this, you have this beautiful baby that you have now, uh, and, uh, and I'm sorry to cause you to be triggered emotionally, but I am going to trigger you emotionally. God sure. forbid you walked in to see your daughter and uh, you saw a tick biting her. Um, what would you do and what would you recommend uh, that you and your wife do so that your daughter wouldn't uh, suffer from Lyme disease? Yeah, for sure. That's, um, I, you know, get that tick and um, send it in to, you know, a lab that's going to be able to analyze, analyze it, um, get her into, um, a preferably, preferably a uh, Lyme literate doctor and, uh, and go about the process as quickly as, as possible of addressing that, you know? Um, and, you know, because I, I'm not sure how I feel about the antibiotics. I know that they can be life, well, I don't know about life saving, but they can definitely prevent the acute phase. I just haven't 
dealt with that. I don't, none of my doctors, they all tell me to go away from antibiotics. Honestly, I knew that you guys would ask this question and I, I don't know what the best answer is, but um, like I said, I think that getting the tick tested and, and addressing it as, as quickly as possible um, is going to be our solution, getting into a Lyme literate doctor who understands the severity, the potential severity of the situation. Well, Zach Jones, thank you so much for coming on our Tick Bootcamp podcast and sharing your story and everything you've learned with our audience to help everybody else in this community. We can't thank you enough. Thank you so much. I appreciate being on here, you guys. Thanks for all you do. Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Zach Jones. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Zach, check him out on Facebook at Zachalicious Jones. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of our Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We are you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com slash bite to view our blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of almost 300 episodes, subscribe to our email list, or share feedback with us, please visit our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.